The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines this morning. UBS rips away the safety net, voluntarily scrapping the cash provision agreement with the Swiss National Bank, with the country's federal council confirming taxpayers will no longer bear any risk from the collapse of Credit Suisse. Wall Street welcomes a softer-than-expected inflation print, with major indices posting their first pause of session in three, fueling hopes that the Fed will keep rates on hold at its September meeting. An ex-corps, Linda Yaccarino, insists she has full autonomy as a CEO of the Elon Musk-owned company and tells CNBC in an exclusive interview that major advertisers are returning to the platform. It definitely does not make my job impossible. I think what it, it fuels more of an ambition for my job to make sure that everyone, including Elon, is entitled to their own opinion. Our fashion giant Tapestry strikes an $8.5 billion deal to acquire Versace's parent company Capri with the Kate Spade owner hoping to reach new parts of the luxury sector. We're, we're gaining access to parts of the market where we haven't had access, the, the higher end luxury uh, parts of the market, so we're broadening our access there and as I said the brands are, are quite complementary. We start the morning with big news crossing from UBS, that huge safety net that had been provided by the authorities on the back of the consolidation of Swiss banking, namely UBS taking over Credit Suisse, has now been ripped away. And this by UBS in an announcement just out moments ago saying the decision to voluntarily terminate the 9 billion Swiss loss protection agreement, that is the LPA with the Swiss government, following a comp uh, comprehensive assessment of the designated portfolio of Credit Suisse non-core assets, including severe stress test uh, loss scenarios. In addition, after due consideration of the funding situation of Credit Suisse entities in the UBS overall group, the UBS has decided to voluntarily terminate the uh, public liquidity backstop, that is the PLB, with the Swiss National Bank of up to 100 billion Swissy that is guaranteed by the Swiss government. And they've fully repaid the emergency liquidity assistance plus loan. These measures together with the intervention of UBS contributed to the stabilization of Credit Suisse and the financial stability in Switzerland and globally. So um, the news crossing today, uh, just first up this morning about this transaction, which of course became <clears throat> excuse me, effective as of uh, the 12th of June, 2023. What this means, don't forget, uh, this was uh, something that had been overhanging the stock to an extent. Having the safety that net there, fairly significant because uh, I think a lot of investors initially first up questioned just exactly what UBS was taking on. The verdict then quickly became that UBS had uh, a very good deal here. The, the pricing that it had picked up Credit Suisse for was a win for UBS. And now the overhang was, well, look, this is highly political. If you've got a massive safety net sitting there and there's government intervention down the track potentially, then to what extent can you keep on paying out large returns to shareholders down the track? To what extent can you cut back on costs in terms of uh, removing certain numbers from the workforce? Yeah. These were hurdles that were making it very difficult to do business. And I think this is positioning ahead of the numbers, second quarter numbers due out later this month. So Sergio Motti effectively just signaling now that the safety net will be rolled back. 
Yeah, I think that's very interesting, uh, Karen. And the fact that uh, Credit Suisse has also paid back its emergency liquidity assistance loan of uh, uh, 50 billion uh, francs, Swiss francs, uh, to the Swiss National Bank uh, is encouraging to see. What is also encouraging is that the termination uh, comes in with immediate effect. Uh, so they are essentially sending out a message that they do not need and they've been able to work out this integration program on their own and do not need the government's backing to do the same. I think for, from a stock perspective, like you said, this was a bit of an overhang. So maybe we could see uh, a bit of an up move uh, on the back of this announcement. and. Uh, what this means in terms of uh, you know synergies between the two as the two uh, entities come together i mean we were just reading some headlines about how they're looking at revamping their asia business they're looking at actually uh, cutting out 80 percent of uh, of their uh, personnels uh, the workforce in asia so they're overhauling their asia business they might be looking at major restructuring as the two entities come together as a combine becomes one uh, and that's something that the market will be watching out yeah, I think UBS is keen to ensure that it doesn't remain a political football at home in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And if you consider what the initial uh, detail of this uh, contract was, it was 94 pages long, uh, but it didn't uh, effectively uh, tally up what assets would be covered by this agreement. That was in a separate statement elsewhere. So effectively, uh, the 9 billion Swiss francs could only be tapped once UBS had uh, taken on board a 5 billion Swiss hit. And don't forget Credit Suisse and those assets that the UBS had taken on. They'd already marked them down. So to uh, effectively hit this uh, threshold, those assets would need to fall another 11% below the discounted value. So there was a view, well, why would you tap that safety net? Why would you tap those funds? Because you would have to take a giant markdown on, on the assets. So effectively uh, realize the loss straight up before you could tap the funds. As some were saying, it might be better if the situation ever eventuated to wait it out, hold on to those assets, not embark upon some sort of serious markdown uh, or effective fire sale, tried to wait for the assets to recover in pricing. So the safety net was there. But would it realistically be something that UBS management wanted to tap? So the negatives at this point seem to be outweighing the positives of keeping that uh, protection cover there down the track. So uh, huge news crossing this morning for Friday. Uh, happy Friday, everyone. Oh, I know. <laughs> Breaking news, the start of the show. What a way to start, right? Uh, uh, but indeed, uh, I think that the stock of UBS, uh, Karen, has done well from a 12-month as well as a year-to-date perspective. So maybe this could just build on to those gains this piece of news that they don't need the government's backing with regards to their merger with Credit Suisse. Uh, moving on, uh, let's talk about the big story overnight. Headline, U.S. inflation came in softer than expected in July. Consumer prices rose by 3.2% on an annualized basis. Uh, that was up from 3% in June, but still a far, far cry from the peak of 9%, 9.1% last year. Uh, core CPI, which excludes uh, food and energy prices, marked its smallest back-to-back -back gains in more than two years. Uh, that was, of course, helped by a 12.5% drop in annual prices, energy prices, while food and shelter costs still remain sticky. It would be worth noting that used car prices uh, pretty much stayed static uh, through this period on a month-on-month -month basis. The inflation data will be one of the key metrics uh, the Fed will weigh in deciding whether the uh, whether they should continue in increasing raising rates or not. CME Fed funds uh, futures indicate nearly 90% of market participants expect the Fed will hold at the September meeting.
that is what the expectation is for now. But anything can change given the data flow that we are expected to see through this month, through the month of October. I just want to quickly recap the U.S. market action. It was a good day, uh, fractionally higher for the markets uh, on balance. So the Dow Jones Industrial Average was higher. The S&P 500 index uh, closed just a smidge in the green. And that was the case uh, with the Nasdaq as well. Uh, it must be said that you did see... Uh, a fair amount of strong performance coming in from some of the individual names, some of the individual tech stocks uh, that helped to support the market sentiment, uh, which has been rather volatile for the better part of this week. Treasuries then very quickly, let's take a look at that. Uh, the uh, 210 spread remains uh, steep and we are looking at that going at between 70-73 basis points, hinting that the market is expecting a recovery down the road. I do want to mark uh, Asian markets as well. Ex-Japan and Japan is shut on account of the Mountain Day holiday. Uh, and so this is what the scene is looking like. It's lovely to see the Nifty uh, 50 over here. Uh, trading is underway for that market. It's fractionally lower. Uh, we are, of course, looking at uh, the China market reeling under pressure because of President Biden's executive order in banning uh, new technologies and sensitive technologies, the export of that uh, to China. Uh, so you're seeing some pressure for that market across the board. And the ASX 200 as well, remember, with that gas price is rising and the expectation that there could be a strike in the works uh, uh, among workers at LNG plants in Australia. Uh, broadly speaking, the resources index is under pressure. Karen. Sanvir, let's get uh, Kayla Burrell, who is Senior Economist, Morning Consult, to dig into those uh, CPI numbers. Kayla, the market was somewhat cautious running up to the inflation numbers uh, for fear that the base effects would start to fade and then we get a push higher on inflation. But uh, the numbers coming through encouraging at this stage. What was still a concern, of course, with the shelter component, uh, that was, what, 90% of July's increase here, as we saw this lag effect, a catch-up of some of the higher rents uh, from previous uh, months that had transpired. What do you expect the inflation numbers to do from here based on what we saw yesterday? Good morning and great question. So overall, the report was quite positive, as you described earlier. Um, and yeah, despite those base effects, that there was a slight increase in that top line number. But really what the Fed is watching is that underlying core component that is stickier. Uh, housing is a very large part of that, though, that shelter component, uh, which is still running very high, whether you look at the rent or the owner's equivalent rent, still in that 7 to 8% year-over-year range. Uh, and I'm watching that component very closely to sort of to see what happens with inflation over the next, not just the rest of this year, but next year as well. And that's where I start to get a little bit concerned just because uh, that component factors in housing market prices on a lag. So we did see this major softening in the U.S. housing market over last year going into early this year. Prices have already started to rebound from that. I think as a result of what we've seen last year, we can expect continued cooling for that shelter component the rest of this year. But because there's just so many supply constraints in the market, we really might to see, start to see prices rebound and see that filter through into the CPI next year. So the Fed still may have some trouble dealing with this shelter component, especially as it remains so high year over year and continues to put upward pressure on top line inflation. Kayla, the oil price has also shot up again since about June. Very steep acceleration in the price. Second round effects can, of course, kick in. We've got uh, problems around the food situation, too, with this grain deal out of Russia that has been thwarted. Just give us a sense as to how the oil and food components can play out from here. The major thing with those components that, that I really think about is 
how important those are to consumer sentiment and the impacts that might have on spending. Even though we think of those as economists, we think of those as sort of the volatile components. You don't even look at them as part of core and you don't worry about that as much as a sticky price. But when it comes down to the prices that really matter for U.S. consumers, the ones that are visible, you know, you see what gas prices are, you see what the price of milk is at the grocery store, the price of bread. Uh, those prices are really what impacts how consumers view inflation in a little bit of an outsized way. So what the concern there is really what what that might do to the everyday consumer um, and the pressure it might put on household budgets, just because these are those everyday purchases that most people don't have much choice in, in buying, even as prices go up. Right, Kayla, good morning to be joining in this conversation. What is your own sense on the trend from here? Because uh, many are saying that the climb down from these levels would be very, very difficult. I agree with that. I, I think it's possible we will continue to see some cooling. I, I'm not foreshadowing any huge spike in inflation. There's definitely some positive trends that are going on too. It's not all doom and gloom. One thing I would point to that is a positive is that slower wage growth we've been seeing, which I know the Fed is also watching for the services component because it's a cost input for that. Uh, really, the concerns for me are that shelter component, whether that's going to come down much more and whether it might start to rebound as, as these newer housing prices start to get digested by the index. And then separately in the goods component, that has been a helper so far. Uh, it's benefited from this bigger shift of consumer demand away from goods towards services. That's helped to cool price growth for goods. But I wonder a little bit about if there's some pent up demand for some of these goods, things like used autos that have helped to cool price growth recently. Might there be some consumers who have had to defer these purchases back when there were a lot more supply constraints? And, and could that demand start to pick up and put some upward pressure on prices. Right. I, I also want to get your sense in on, you know, uh, whether the market should believe that this, uh, the Fed is moving in the right direction in terms of uh, its rate increases and whether those rate increases, 11 in a row, have had the impact that the Fed was uh, foreseeing or expecting. And how would that pave the way for when they decide to cut? It's a very tricky question. My, my guess is that Based on what Powell has been saying, uh, my impression is really, one, that he's very determined to get these price levels back to that 2% annual growth, um, and two, that a lot of the factors that they've been pointing to are currently reacting or responding in the way that they were hoping. Whether you can really trace that directly back to what rates have been doing is a little less clear, but they've said over and over again, we need to see cooling in the labor market. Uh, and, we, and, and we saw that the housing market responded very quickly. So in some cases, yes, it does seem like some of these factors that are helping inflation slow could be tied to interest rates. Then there is everything happening with the good side. The Fed doesn't have control over supply and, and the goods inventory recoveries, things like that that have contributed to slower goods pricing is something that's kind of out of their hands. So yes and no is one way to answer that question. Um, and then there's another part that's just wait and see, because there is, again, kind of a lag nature to the way that the economy incorporates and responds to interest rate increases.
Kayla, the, the lag has been incredible this time round. Some might have thought it'd be quicker, but we've seen a lot of fixing when it comes to the mortgages as well, and that has meant much slower turnaround. So as we talk about higher for longer, what is the longer scenario at this point? What could we be looking at? That's a great question. And I'd have to say we, we may need to wait and see because of some of the risk factors that I described that I'm a bit concerned about. And I think I'm not the first one to say this. There, there are a lot of people who believe that this last getting from that 3% ish range down to the 2% is really going to be a lot more difficult than, than some of what we've seen so far. So it, it's all going to depend on, on the reports that we see forthcoming. Uh, personally, I'm expecting we may start to see a bit more cooling and spending growth. Right now, the factors are lining up to sort of allow for this soft landing, but that doesn't mean that they're all going to stay trending in the right direction. So that's really the question that that I'll be watching over in the coming months. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, in the middle of the night, your time. So we appreciate the commentary as well. Kayla Brim with our senior economist, Morning Consult. For a full breakdown of the latest US CPI data, you can check out cnbc.com. And coming up on the show, Linda Yaccarino speaks exclusively to CNBC, her first sit-down interview since taking uh, the helm at XCorp. Uh, she discusses the future of the company, advertiser boycotts and the build-up to their proposed mask Zuckerberg cage fight. We haven't forgotten about that. At 8 a.m. CET, we will get you the latest GDP figures out of the UK with growth expected to come in flat for the second quarter. And we'll also be discussing the latest US CPI print and where the Fed goes from here with the CIO of Morningstar, Mike Coop. He joins us around the desk at 8 a.m. CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Yaccarino, CEO of XCorp, the firm formerly known as Twitter, says she has, quote, autonomy in her job as company chief and that her and Elon Musk's roles are very clear. Yaccarino spoke exclusively to CNBC's Sarah Eisen and said advertisers who fled the platform in droves amid a spike in hate speech and politically illegal or potentially illegal content should feel comfortable returning to the site. Yaccarino outlined how her and Musk's roles differ. Elon focuses on product design. He leads a team of extraordinary engineers and focuses on new technology. So think about it as Elon is working on accelerating the rebrand and working on the future. And I'm responsible for the rest, running the company, from partnerships to legal to sales to finance, all the things. And you have what autonomy we, what, in doing that? Yes, I have autonomy in doing that. As in also asked her, Yaccarino, why brands should feel safe advertising on a platform populated with hate, malice and uh, conspiracy theories? I think that's an appropriate question. I think some of the headline comments or phrases uh, need to be continually uh, 
brought to light and debunked, and I'm glad you asked. But I, I want to be clear. You know, um, for almost 11 years, my previous experience was at NBC Universal. And a large part of my remit was uh, overseeing all the advertising revenue and partnerships for the company. And our number one social partner was Twitter. And Twitter was safe, and we felt comfortable always being there. And but not all it, brands. I mean, a lot of brands on, have, have left. Okay, hang on. I'm, I'm going. I, <laughs> I hear you. Um, and by, I, I want to take that last 10 years and put it in perspective. Because by all objective metrics, X is a much healthier and safer platform than it was a year ago. Since acquisitions, we have built brand safety and content moderation tools that have never existed before at this company. And we've introduced a new policy to your specific point about hate speech called freedom of speech, not reach. So if you're going to post something that's illegal or against the law, you're gone, zero tolerance. But more importantly, if you're going to post something that is lawful, but it's awful, you get labeled. You get labeled, you get de-amplified, which means it cannot be shared, and it is certainly demonetized. Back to your direct point about brand safety. Brands, yeah. brand safety. So they are protected from the risk of being next to that content. And it's also why uh, it's really important to note that once a post is labeled and it can't be shared and the user sees that 30% of the time they take it down themselves. Staggeringly, they take it down. And that reducing that hateful content from being seen is one of the best examples how X is committed to encouraging healthy behavior online. And today, I can confidently sit in front of you and say that 99.9% of all posted impressions are healthy. How do you define healthy, though? Is porn healthy? Are conspiracy theories healthy? You know, it goes back to my point about our success with freedom of speech, not reach. And if it's, if it is lawful, but it's awful, it's extraordinarily difficult for you to see it. But for her. Linda Yaccarino there, and of course, uh, this is a big outing for Yaccarino in the CEO role. She Indeed. was previously with our organization and the head of all revenue, so this is someone who knows advertisers extremely well. I think there was a point that she was keen to get across here in terms of uh, how she sees managing some of the concerns that advertisers have had about the platform. And if you think about uh, the hate speech, of course, that was touched on there and inappropriate content that brands don't want to be aligned with, and of course, the issue of uh, Elon Musk tweeting himself and what that does for the overall brand she touched on all this and in terms of moving back some of those spenders um, apparently according to some reports brands that have resumed spending on the platform are Mondelez of mm. course a big one in the snack food industry and the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly they have returned according to the Wall Street Journal but still apparently 40 percent 
of the top 100 ad spenders uh, from when Musk took over have not returned as of July. So Yakarino has her work cut out for her, but this is someone who's used to managing what 10 billion plus of revenue per year. Yeah. She knows all the big advertisers and she's willing to come up with creative models to woo those advertisers uh, back as well. So she has uh, the numbers in place and she also understands how to get the numbers going when it comes to uh, ad spends increasing on the platform. Uh, but I think a, a large part of that story really lies in execution and how she will be able to manage the policy that Elon has laid out when it comes to, uh, you know, just keeping the restrictions on content for the platform. Uh, I think it's also interesting to highlight, uh, Karen, that right now they're going through this rebranding exercise at XCorp, erstwhile Twitter, and how that settles in with Musk's ambitions of making this an everything app, you know, pretty much rivaling uh, WeChat uh, in Asia uh, and more specifically in China. That is going to be an interesting story to see going forward and how they're able to bundle everything together and sell it as one unit. Uh, the rebranding exercise has happened. I'm still used to calling it Twitter. I'm still used to calling uh, my tweets tweets. Uh, but I think it's going to be... I know. Generic post. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but it's, it's an interesting um, twist in the story yeah. in terms of how the revenues really come in at this point. I liked her point, by the way, about you know distinguishing between what was unlawful but what is lawful yet awful and so how they're looking at distinguishing content uh, and managing that. This is on, a real feature the, of how Yakarino approaches content that she doesn't see it all in, in one big category. She does the quality content, um, content that goes viral, that gets a lot of clicks but isn't high quality. She does break out and differentiate in terms of how she views revenue. At one point though I think a very difficult exercise trying to defend X at this point because a huge amount of value torched by getting rid of the Twitter name and moving towards an X platform and that was something that Yakarino is really forced to defend there. But I think what they were keen to get across in that interview was that X is going in this direction. They're not staying still as Twitter, waiting for threads to catch up, uh, that they are moving forward to the super app model and, in fact, you know, going after phone calls without yeah. uh, using numbers, which is a real swipe for me at WhatsApp. It, yeah, it almost exactly. in some ways taking a hit back to, to Zuckerberg there. My, but my only question would be, uh, you know, to this whole entire episode, is that why did they have to change the name? Why couldn't they keep it Twitter and go the super app route? This is the ethos question, isn't it? That if you change the name, you're not trapped in the old mindset of what the company used yeah. to do and you can go in any direction, you can disrupt, you can keep moving aggressively. I think this one will need time to play out, whether you look back and say that brand exercise was a worthy one, it changed the mission, it changed the ability of the organisation to move, or it just didn't work. They should have stuck with Twitter. I mean, that's going to need time. exercise doesn't only have to work for the management, it also has to work for the subscribers, and they have a subscriber base of 350 million. So yeah, let's see whether all of us get used to this new world on X. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.